If you listen to the Van City podcast on a regular or even semi-regular basis, do us a favor and go to vancity.church/survey and fill out a very brief anonymous questionnaire. Thanks a lot. I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church podcast. The following teaching is part 57 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. As Matthew's biography of Jesus continues, the power of Jesus becomes increasingly evident. Jesus surprises the disciples by claiming that they too have become capable of wielding this incredible power. But how they do it, not unlike the power itself, defies expectation. In Mary Doria Russell's novel, The Sparrow, Michael, you and I were actually just talking about this novel recently, weren't we? Oh, great, yeah. Well, anyway, in that novel, The Sparrow, a character named Anne describes her experience of being married to the same man for decades. And I was struck by this piece of dialogue. She says it like this. I've been married at least four times to four different men. They've all been named George Edwards, but believe me, the man who's waiting for me down the hall is a whole different animal from the boy I married back before there was dirt. Oh, there are continuities. He's always been fun. He's never been able to budget his time properly, and well, the rest is none of your business. Cultures change. Empires rise and fall. Geology changes. Every 10 years or so, George and I have faced the fact that we have changed, and we've had to decide if it makes sense to create a new marriage between these two new people. I've been following Jesus for what feels to me like a long time now, more than two decades. Seems long to some, seems barely a dent to those much further down the road of discipleship than I am today. But if I attempt to explain the best, most wonderful, and the most challenging things about following Jesus for this long and much longer to go, it would probably sound a lot like I'm talking about marriage. Which is weird because God doesn't actually change. Well, that language is a bit misleading. God's character never changes. But the way God relates to us season to season, even day by day in some sense, shifts and evolves. It's dynamic, not static. And I've changed a lot. The way I talk to Jesus has changed. The way he talks to me has certainly changed. How I feel has changed. What's important to me has changed over the years. So the way that I engage in something like prayer every morning, or spiritual disciplines like fasting or reading the Bible. I just can't do what I did 10 years ago and expect the same exact type of results. But I often think I can, because I often reduce my relationship with Jesus to a formulaic exchange rather than a dynamic interplay of evolving emotions and circumstances. So if I want to tap into what we often call the power of Jesus— that is the power to be changed over time to someone different than I am now, the power to be healed of things, the power to prophesy and pray over other people, the power to access wisdom and discernment from God's Spirit. I can never rely on formulas. I have to draw from a complicated, evolving relationship 
instead. Which brings us to Matthew, which is an ancient biography that chronicles the life and the teaching and the work of history's most divisive figure, Jesus of Nazareth. Last week, we read this incredible story about Jesus. He's on a mountain with a few friends. It was wild. Jesus starts glowing in the story. God shows up in a cloud and talks audibly. Some people, long thought dead, appear as if from nowhere. Weird, wild stuff. But Matthew wraps up that scene and has his characters on their way back down the mountain where we pick up the story in Matthew 17, verse 9. You guys ready? You all right? Great. Matthew 17, 9. As they were coming down the mountain. Okay, pause for a moment there. (laughs) As I was saying, so last week's text, Jesus had taken three of his apprentices, Peter, James, and John, up a mountain, which itself was a symbolic gesture. In the Old Testament, Moses went up a mountain to hear from God's presence. The same thing happens to Jesus in Matthew 17. Now the four of them are making their way back down to join the rest of Jesus' disciples, but not before Jesus talks to them about what they just saw on the mountain, which seems like you you want to have a conversation about that. And verse 9 goes on. Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen, meaning what happened up on the mountain, until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So Jesus, characteristic at this point of his messianic behavior when he acts like the Messiah in Matthew's gospel thus far, he wants the incredible scene that his friends have just witnessed to be kept under wraps. Don't go around telling people what you saw, which seems like a big thing to ask at this point. To recap, they went up a mountain, Jesus started glowing, Uh, Moses and Elijah, two dudes who are at this point not living, to be clear, show up, giant cloud envelops them, out of which issues the audible voice of God. They're on their way back down to join the others, and Jesus is like, that was nuts, right? Don't tell anyone what you saw up there. And remember, Jesus has been pretty forthcoming at this point about his plan. Specifically, at this point in the story, he wants to now make his way back to Jerusalem, the holy city, and suffer and die. Those are the words he used to describe his plan. His disciples don't want that to happen. Go figure. They want Jesus to gather troops, plan an insurrection, overthrow Rome, and restore Israel to its proper seat of power. So news of this mountaintop encounter that Jesus was just a minute ago glowing and hanging out with heroes from the Old Testament who were supposed to be dead, audible voice of God, all that, That would likely stir up more anticipation for Jesus to be the kind of king that Israel was really expecting him to be, likely creating more backlash against his weird plan to suffer and die. So it makes sense. He's like, hey, wait until after my plan is totally accomplished, and then you can tell whoever you want. And they did, and we're talking about it right now. But the disciples, understandably, have at least a couple of questions. Verse 10 goes on. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law, the Bible scholars of Jesus' day, say that Elijah must come first? So this is in scholarship called the Elijah question, and it would not end here. Israel's religious leaders would continue to object to early church claims that Jesus was the Messiah by asking a simple question. Hey, if Jesus is supposed to be the anointed king of Israel, where the heck was Elijah? Which seems weird to us, but it's actually a pretty uh, reasonable question. The last of the Hebrew prophets, the last book actually in our Old Testament, ends with this specific promise. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of Yahweh comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And that's the way that uh, Malachi ends. If you know the story of the Hebrew scriptures, it concludes on an unresolved note. Israel is at this point in the story still waiting for a figure that got promised all the way back in Genesis. And centuries later, there's still no sign of this person. 
But God's prophets go on reminding Israel, hey, don't worry, don't give up. The Messiah will come. But first, for some reason, Yahweh is going to send Elijah. Elijah, if you know the story, was a prophet who shows up in First and Second Kings. He doesn't actually die in the traditional sense. Really weird story. You can go read it on your own time. It's in Second Kings. Elijah takes a walk with his protege, a dude called Elisha. And while they're together, a chariot of fire <laughs> comes blazing out of the sky. Elijah hops onto it, and he flies away into heaven. What does that mean? Uh, well, don't get distracted by the strangeness of that ancient story. The point is, for tonight's purposes... That Israel's prophets went on to say, hey, listen, wherever Elijah went, um, he didn't die, and he's going to come back to proceed and prepare the way for Israel's Messiah. And when uh, he did, he, when Elijah did come back, the idea was that he would get Israel ready. He would put things in order. He would prepare hearts. He would make restorations. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day believed, with most Jewish people at this point, that Elijah himself would literally show up in the flesh and get all this done. So if you've been tracking in Matthew, there's no trace of Elijah showing up before Jesus. He did, to be fair, have a cameo in the previous story, but it's 30 plus years into Jesus' life, and he doesn't really prepare anyone for anything. We don't even know what he says. He just talks with Jesus, so that couldn't be it. The question of Elijah coming before the Messiah was so ingrained in Jewish culture that it's still used to this day by rabbis to object to Jesus' claims to be the Messiah of Israel. And notice, when the disciples ask, they phrase it as someone else's question and not theirs. They're like, hey, how come the teachers of the law say Elijah has to come first? It's the equivalent of saying, like, I have this friend, and they want to know this thing. That's how I talk to my therapist. I'm like, I'm not crazy, but I have this friend, and he's really messed up. Can you help me help him? <laughs> um, uh, no, it's, I'm kidding. I tell him that I am crazy. But obviously, if the disciples... If the disciples were totally uninterested in the answer, they wouldn't bother asking. It's their question, not just the question of the religious leaders. But the important thing is that they ask. I'm actually quite touched by that. In the biographies of Jesus, um, the disciples are, make a lot of mistakes, if you read the story. And though you could argue that they aren't being entirely forthright here, they're kind of couching their question in somebody else's question, I think it's awesome that they at least ask. They want to know, so they ask Jesus. And he answers them. Look down at verse 11. He replies, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. So he's quoting from Malachi. But then he goes on, but I tell you, Elijah has already come. So the first part of Jesus' answer is essentially, like I said, a quoted paraphrase of Malachi. And he's repeating now a teaching formula that he established in the Sermon on the Mount. If you think back to chapters 5, 6, and 7, he, Jesus would say, you have heard it said. And then he would quote from the Hebrew Scriptures. And then he would say, but I tell you. So here he's saying, you've heard it said, Elijah will come and restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And he goes on. They did not recognize him and have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite uh, term for himself, is going to suffer at their hands. Verse 13, then the disciples understood that Jesus was talking to them about John the Baptist. So Jesus explains that Malachi's promised Elijah was not a literal visit from the actual person, but rather an Elijah-like figure revealed in this case in John the Baptist. Like Jesus, John was someone that Israel had been waiting for, a prophet who would come prepare the way for the Messiah, but this was not the version of that someone that Israel was expecting. And this is incredible because Malachi promised that Elijah would put things in order, prepare Israel for the day of Yahweh in the language of that prophet. So how did John the Baptist uh, accomplish this? By simply pointing to Jesus. Stanley Hauerwas puts it like this. 
To restore all things, as Elijah was said to do, does not mean everything's going to work out the way we want it to work out. Rather, Israel's restoration entails a complete reorientation of all things, including our definitions of power. The kingdom inaugurated in the Messiah's presence restores what was lost by calling into existence a people capable of living as an alternative to the world. Meaning, Israel's expectation for Elijah to come and restore all things wasn't, in the end, what they expected. And in the story, as is still the case today, we do not take kindly to that which deviates from our own expectations and certainly that which deviates from our own desires. John wasn't the Elijah Israel was expecting, nor the Elijah that they wanted. And so John was rejected by the religious leaders, and he suffered a humiliating death at the hands of a detested ruler. And a common theme in the teaching of Jesus is over and over again, hey, wake up, you're missing it. What you've been waiting for is happening right now, and you are missing it. And then he tells them, look, the same thing is happening and will continue to happen to me. I've been overlooked, I've been misunderstood, and I will suffer as a result. So notice an interesting kind of give and take in Matthew's uh, literary technique here. In the last couple of stories, we've seen this kind of back and forth taking place. Chapter 16, you have the story where Peter declares Jesus is the Messiah, he's the king of the world, and Jesus com commends him for getting it right. Yep, that's absolutely right. But then Jesus says, and I'm going to suffer and die. And then in chapter 17, Jesus goes up on a mountain, he glows, he's approved of by God's audible voice, then he comes down the mountain and says again, I'm going to suffer and die. Matthew is driving the point home. Yes, Jesus is the true, glorious, powerful king, but not the king you are expecting. Jesus will not use his power the way Israel had hoped, but he does have power, and it's something that he intends to teach his apprentices. And this, the next story is exactly about how that works. Let's keep reading in verse 14. When they came to the crowd, Jesus and the three of them came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. So remember, this story flows immediately from the one that preceded it. The same Jesus who was just revealed in spectacular glory on the mountaintop is now again the guy we've been reading about all along, peasant rabbi who has seen and known human suffering and lives amongst people. And like so many stories before this one, this is about people who are in need. A father approaches Jesus on behalf of his suffering son. So filling in the gaps, you can deduce that the nine disciples who didn't go up the mountain with Jesus have been down here attempting to heal this boy, but they can't do it for some reason. My Bible translates a line in verse 15 describing the boy's ailment as, quote, he has seizures. Some of your translations might use the word epileptic. Literally, it's a single Greek word, and it actually means moonstruck, of all things. The word is derived from the moon goddess Selene. The etymology of the word is in this ancient belief that Selene would use lunar cycles to afflict people with seizures. And interestingly, that premise, along with the Latin word for moon, luna, is where we get uh, the derivative English word lunatic. And the point is that ancient peoples had a very thorough understanding of the physical realm and the spiritual realm as interlocked. And Jesus, though he likely did not approve of the whole idea of Selene, moon goddess, seizures, and stuff like that, he does believe in a connectedness between physical sickness and spiritual sickness. And you can see that when you keep reading verse 17. He says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with me? Or how, I sh how, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. So notice this, 
right away in the story. Jesus is annoyed. He's uh, ticked off, I would go as far as to say, or at least very discouraged. Meaning, you can deduce from this, it is okay to be annoyed, to be ticked off, to be discouraged. Of course, what you do with those emotions is important, but depending on your personality, the personalities of the people closest to you, the whole, you know, Jesus gets mad and bummed thing might be a tough pill for you to swallow. Um, I'm what the, uh, the mental health people call a feeling person first, meaning, uh, apparently, I've been told, I feel stuff emotionally, and then I think about it in that order. So my wife, Abby, for example, like I'm sure a lot of you, does it the other way around. Life gives her crap, and she's all, interesting, let's organize this a bit, and after we've collected sufficient data, I will take this over to the emotions department for processing, you know? And with all the bureaucracy and stuff, it might never make it there. You don't even know. <laughs> you might have to hire like a contractor to move it. Meanwhile, life hands me crap, maybe the same crap, and I'm coming undone. Like my, it's like the processing department is further down the hall. So my mind is like, you know what? Let's just take this straight to emotions first, get it over with. And life is like, um, bad news, sir. And I'm already like, oh, God, you know, I'm coming apart, weeping. And Abby's telling me, because she's, <laughs> I'm like, hang it up, it's over. And Abby's telling me, you should get yourself together. And I'm like, you should get yourself less together, you know. <laughs> now, obviously, there are strengths and weaknesses to both wirings. Mostly, it just is what it is. But my experience as a person who feels things, I'm often noticing people less inclined to do so, and I'm sure it goes the other way around for them. And Jesus serves as an example to both personalities. It's okay, even good, to be angry or bummed or discouraged or ticked off, and that what you do with that stuff is just as important as allowing it to come and actually processing those emotions. So here for Jesus, he's essentially saying, I've had it up to here. This is his I've had it up to here moment. And it stands to reason that this is an emotionally taxing time in the life of Jesus. He wants badly for his friends to see what's going to come next, to, to be ready for what comes next, and they're still such a mess. They still don't believe half of what he's telling them or understand what he means by it. And notice he doesn't just gripe about the disciples. He extends his complaint to the entire generation. Unlike us, Jesus saw people and the culture to which they belonged as relationally interconnected. The ancient world didn't really have an, an individualistic understanding of the world. We, in the modern Western world, especially in America, have almost only an individualistic way of understanding ourselves and our participation in culture. And then there's this uh, other brilliant literary illusion at work in the story as well. Jesus if you remember, he's just come down the mountain. He's just spoke with God's presence in a cloud. He arrives to discover Israel faltering in her faith. And this sounds like the story of Moses, who went up the mountain, spoke with God's presence in the cloud, travels back down the mountain to witness Israel faltering in her faith. And what Jesus says would stir in the Jewish memory quotes from Moses himself, who says this in Deuteronomy 32. They are corrupt and not his children to their shame. They are a warped and crooked generation. I will hide my face from, him, from them, he said, and see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. So that uh, carryover is not a mistake. Now in the story, Moses gets down, he witnesses Israel's rebellion, breaks the tablets. Jesus, on the other hand, says, fine, they don't have faith, I'll do it. Bring the boy here. And those words are nearly identical to what Jesus said in chapter 14 when his disciples are like, we don't have enough food, feed the crowd. And he says, fine, bring it to me. Same words, almost identically. 
Matthew is saying for us to get ready, hey, Jesus is about to do something incredible. And verse 18 goes on. Jesus rebuked the demon, or, uh, yeah, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? This is the point of the story, that the disciples are yet unable to do something within the realm of their apprenticeship training, and they don't know why. Why couldn't we do it, Master? And Jesus explains in verse 20, he replied, because you have so little faith. Jesus is so discouraged, not because the disciples underperform or they fail a test or something, but because they still struggle to muster faith. Now, faith, in this sense, isn't necessarily the specific faith that they would be able to heal in Jesus' name. Like, they didn't have enough faith that this would actually happen, but faith in the biggest, broadest sense. Faith that God the Father gives good gifts in the language of Jesus, that he is to be trusted, that he answers when you call on him. The entire conflict of the Bible begins when human beings waver in this faith. Is God really good? Is God really trustworthy? Then comes the fall and a broken world in need of rescuing. And this hurts Jesus not only because it hampers the disciples, but because it also hurts those in need. Here's a little boy who's in need of healing, who nearly went without, all because faith in God's goodness was lacking amongst the disciples. That, to Jesus, is very serious stuff. But lest we feel defeated by what often seems the impossibility of true faith, Jesus has words of comfort, even in his frustration. Verse 20 goes on, and Jesus says, Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. In other words, it doesn't take much, just some faith. And Jesus is using a word picture to juxtapose the smallest possible thing with the biggest possible thing. With almost nothing, you can do the seemingly impossible. And this is obviously a hyperbolic, it's a metaphor, but it is meant to inspire us with something that is true nonetheless. When it comes to faith and prayer, it doesn't take much to do a lot. Why don't the disciples have it at this point? We don't know. Could have been a situational thing, maybe because Jesus wasn't there and they were, they were lacking confidence. Maybe they had begun to assume at this point that they had like quasi-magical healing powers rather than an invitation to just ask God for things. In any event, the reason that they can't do it is because they're lacking in faith. R.T. France makes this kind of stuffy, academic-sounding observation sound emotionally profound when he writes this, faith is not a measurable commodity, but a relationship. And what achieves results through prayer is not a superior quantity of faith, but the unlimited power of God on which faith, any faith, can draw. N.T. Wright uses an interesting analogy to explain the exact same concept. He says, the secret, of course, is that the size of the faith isn't important. What matters is that it's facing in the right direction. A tiny slit in the wall will do if the moon is on that side of the house. A huge window facing in the wrong direction will be no good at all. That's what true faith is like. The smallest prayer to the one true God will produce great things. The most elaborate devotions to a God of your own making, or indeed someone else's, will be useless or worse. All right, we're almost done. Let's land here. Chapter 17 of Matthew's Gospel introduces something that scholars call the doctrine of power. 
So Jesus is the long-awaited king of Israel. He has demonstrated at this point heavenly power, and now he has been revealed in power himself, approved of by God's voice, transfigured, all that. Jesus plans to build for himself a community of people on the foundation of anyone who would confess Jesus is who he claims to be, and he is the king of the world. So how does this new community of people, this new family, wield this awesome power of the king? And what's interesting to me about this story is not so much that the disciples are at a loss here in this specific situation, but that earlier in the story, they weren't. In Matthew 10, Jesus is like, okay, you guys are ready, go out, heal people, cast out demons, do all that stuff. Go for it. And they do it. Now they're bumbling around all over again. Why can't they do it? What, what changed? Um, I have no internal sense of navigation. I'm sure I've told you this before. I can remember like movies verbatim in one or two sittings. I can remember trivial bits of pop culture from when I was five, commercial jingles and stuff like that. But I can't remember how to get from here to new seasons. I've made that drive dozens of times. If you ask me to do it right now, I would really have no idea whether to turn right or left down Main Street. If you think I'm exaggerating, I'm really not. Uh, I walk, and this is, this is the truth, ask Abby, I walk in one direction to a destination, a coffee shop, go inside, get the coffee, come outside, and then go the wrong way to get back home. Um, I, don't, I don't know why. It's not because I'm lazy or deliberately obtuse anyway. Something in my brain doesn't work that stuff out for me. So in the late 90s, which was when I was learning to drive the first time, at this point, no GPS, no map quest or anything like that. Um, just this is how it would happen. My dad would say, you can go down here, you know, turn there, and you see that sign, that's where it's at, you know? And uh, so I, I was constantly lost. That's how it worked. And my strategy was this. Uh, he would send me on errands, thinking it good that I learned how to navigate things and that you know, he didn't have to do the errands himself, I'm sure. So my strategy would be like, Follow the directions as best as you can until you have no idea where you are anymore. Wander around for a while until you see a payphone. Pull over, call home, collect, and then say, Dad, uh, I see a tree, <laughs> a gas station, this road over here. Where am I? And I remember him saying all the time, like through his teeth, like, Son, you just did this drive. You know, how can you not do it now? I didn't know. I still don't know. So I relate to these guys in that sense. I imagine them all down there trying to do this healing, and they're like, oh, we've, Jesus is not going to like this. Just hurry, hurry, someone do something. And the interesting thing is that when you read the story, they, it seems like they genuinely don't understand why they can't do it. It's not like they're like, we blew it. We know why he's going to be upset. They have to ask him, why couldn't we do it? And one reason could be that because faith is relational rather than formulaic, it doesn't always work the same way in every situation. So if you've been in a relationship with another person for a long time, a friend, a family member, a spouse, then you know that when that relationship is healthy, the way you relate to one another and love one another and ask things of one another is always evolving over time. How you talk to someone you love could be wildly different based on outside circumstances or orbiting contingencies and interdispositions one day to the next. So if you go for the same old techniques to resolve conflict, for example, you'll find few of them are one-size-fits-all. 
And we tend to think of faith as if it's intellectual belief that you can generate of your own volition, like concentration or something like that. So you think like, oh man, I need faith for this. Uh, You know, then you just try to make it happen. But Jesus and the authors of the Bible never depict faith as intellectual belief, at least not intellectual belief alone. For them, faith is a relational way of living and behaving and believing in the world. Meaning, if I have uh, faith in my wife, Abby, I believe she exists, sure, but I also believe in the person that God has called her to be. I believe in my place in her story. I believe in the beautifully deliberate and purposeful choice that we make every day to love one another. So how we partner with one another to function as a team, so to speak, how we talk to one another as a team, it differs wildly from one situation to the next. Sometimes it's really light. Um, Sometimes it's profound, sometimes it's joyful and full of laughter and fun, sometimes it's painful and gut-wrenching and really difficult, but we can do all of that with faith uh, in and for one another, relational faith in the other and in the covenant that we've made. I'm yours, you're mine, we will walk together in life no matter what. It's the only way that we can function with any sense of health and happiness and trust and all that. So similarly, disciples of Jesus function in power via faith, not just belief, like I can convince myself that this might actually happen, but ever-evolving complex relational faith. And Jesus believed, along with the scriptures, that prayer is one of, if not the primary way that we change things in the world. And I suspect every single one of you experiences in various degrees the great human sense that all is not right in the world. And we have ways of dealing with this. We complain on the internet or we shift blame to people or, or, or shift blame or hope to government or to politicians and the world is either bad because of them or it can be made better by different ones and, you know, why not? Ours is a world where the faces of politicians and celebrities and social media personalities are lazily accessible. And God's voice is hard to get at sometimes. It's better, but it requires more from us, from our hearts, from our minds. So we say that we pray, but we often do, how often do we sincerely believe that we can reverse a verdict given by life or circumstances or doctors simply by asking God for it to happen? Or we pray, but it's sometimes really hard to do it drawing from a baseline confession that God is a good dad and he cares about us talking to him. Which is really weird that that's so hard for us to believe, at least it is for me. I'm sure you've all seen or heard the inoffensive variation on prayer in civil conversation. People that don't pray uh, will often say things like, oh man, that's tough, I will send good thoughts. Forgive me if you've said that. I'm about to pick on it for a second. This is hilarious to me. It's like the idea of talking to an invisible, benevolent being. That seems far-fetched for some. I can understand that. But how the heck do you send good thoughts? Where do they go? What do they do when they get there? Can you send bad thoughts? Can you send confusing thoughts? I'm about to mess them up on their test or whatever. It's like someone decided, man, prayer is nuts. Look at all these dummies. Now, if you'll excuse me, I am trying to transport positive thoughts from my brain through the air to another person's mind. Thank you very much. But anyway, that's enough of that. So for the disciple of Jesus... Prayer is not only uh, rational, but it's necessary. That's 
why Jesus is so distraught when the disciples can't get the fundamental presupposition about prayer in place, because a lot is at stake if you don't believe the baseline foundation. For Jesus, prayer is our go-to weapon in setting things to rights. Theologian Karl Barth said it this way, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Writer Sky Jathani argues this, we are not merely passive set pieces in a prearranged cosmic drama, but we are active participants with God in the writing, directing, design, and action that unfolds. Prayer, therefore, is much more than asking God for this or that outcome. It is drawing into communion with Him and there taking up our privileged role as His people. In prayer, we are invited to join Him in directing the course of His world. One more. It's a good one. Trust me. Theologian Walter Wink says it like this. Intercession or praying for stuff to happen is spiritual defiance of what is. In the name of what God has promised, intercessors visualize an alternative future to the one apparently fated by the momentum of current forces. Prayer infuses the air of a time yet to be into the suffocating atmosphere of the present. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. Even a small number of people firmly committed to the new inevitability on which they have fixed their imaginations can decisively affect the shape, of the, the, shape the future takes. These shapers of the future are the intercessors, the people who pray for stuff to happen. So, though I know much better... I do have in my mind the image of what Christian culture often calls a prayer warrior. Um, and I imagine that person has got their act together. They always wake up early. They're emotionally healthy all the time. They're wise. They're admirable. They pray with confidence, and they get stuff done as a result. And that person exists. To be clear, I have known men and women like that by the grace of God. And then I remember me this kind of a shuffling bone heap and often sad, insecure, distracted, dim disciple who lumbers into prayer meetings feeling tired and worn down, this pastor who often finds the well of his compassion has run dry, the depths of his wisdom shallow, the profundity of his words ultimately superficial. And I can tell you from experience that the dude I'm describing prays and God shows up. And I have two ways of explaining this mystery. One stems from the other. The first explanation is that God is not a detached, impersonable, and inaccessible being elsewhere. He is a good, kind, loving, generous Father who is as close as the air on my skin. Now, I am on my best day, I think, a decent dad, and I honestly don't have the words to express how much I care about what my kids have to say to me, and God is a much better dad than I am. So he's pretty gracious with me when I pray. He doesn't turn up his nose and say, wrong words, not holy enough, no deal, and that's it. So that's the first answer to the mystery of why the prayers of someone like me actually does stuff from time to time. The second answer is that in spite of all my garbage, I actually believe that the first answer to that question is true. Not always, not perfectly, but as a baseline foundation that runs the course of this weird and sloppy story of me, I do have faith in God as a good father. And so he and I work together in love. He does the heavy lifting, to be sure, and often the lifting is me. And I think if you're asking yourself uh, tonight what it will mean for you to operate in the empowerment of Jesus in your life, 
as a mom or dad or a student or a friend or a musician or an engineer or a husband or wife, a coworker, a neighbor, whatever it might be. What you're really asking is the same question that Matthew asks the reader of this story again and again and again. And that question is this, can you believe that the things Jesus says are true? Maybe you want to do incredible worldwide global things. You want to become the next Billy Graham or Mother Teresa. You want to change the world. You want to do justice. You want to heal the sick. You want to drive out demons. Or maybe you just want to be a half-decent parent. Maybe you just want to be a faithful friend. That's your aspiration. You want to be a small beacon of loving kindness in your particular neighborhood or school or office. And all of those things are really important to God. He empowers us to do each of them the same way, through the relational intimacy of faith. Of course, it doesn't mean that anything you ask for will appear at the snap of your fingers or that there won't be prayers that go unanswered. But to Jesus, the incredible power to move the world in new directions, be they big or small, comes from faith. Jesus is trustworthy. We will love him and walk with him forever. God is our father. He's good to us. We can ask him for stuff. This is the beautiful childlike simplicity at the heart of what we often call the gospel, the thing that empowers us to do simple, good, or radical works of disarming evil. Now, most, if not all of us, have been asking in life, why can't we do it? The same way Jesus' apprentices asked. We're like uh, disappointed children who plead for their parents' intervention but withdraw from their touch when they move too close. And then we keep asking, why can't we do it? So my prayer for us tonight is that we would learn to call on the awesome power of Jesus, a power revealed in spectacular glory, but made manifest in simple, disarming, relational love, or put more simply, in faith. So let's pray and ask God's Spirit to fill us with more of it. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.